Last year, I received a letter from a prominent financial company based in Edinburgh offering me a wonderful opportunity. Now, this wasn't junk mail uh, posted through everyone's letterbox. Oh, no. It was a personal letter to me as a valued, long-standing customer who had held a savings account with this company for over a decade. The letter told me that this company was going to be demutualized and floated on the stock market, and that as one of their customers, I was entitled to buy shares at a discount in advance of the flotation. And what's more, if I held on to those shares for a whole year, they would throw in some extra ones for free. Well, I was quite pleased to receive this letter, not least because the savings account in question hadn't had a bean in it for about eight years. And there's a little financial tip for you there. Empty your accounts, but never close them. But on the face of it, this looked like a good opportunity. I uh, mentioned it in conversation to a fellow church member who works in the financial sector, uh, but not for the company in question. I'm not that naive. Uh, And he confirmed to me that it was probably a very good opportunity, a very attractive offer. So so, uh, did I take this opportunity? Well, if you really want to know, you can ask me after the service. But life presents us with opportunities all the time. Opportunity knocks, as we say, and sometimes it's very clear what the opportunity is and why it's a good one. But other times, it's not so obvious that something presents an opportunity. For example, if you were to hear a news report about a group of religious believers being brutally murdered by government forces at their place of worship, would you immediately conclude that you were being presented with an opportunity? Or would you interpret a report about 18 people being crushed under a collapsed building as an opportunity? Well, as we'll see from this evening's passage in Luke's Gospel, Jesus saw opportunity in precisely these things. In fact, he believed that they presented the people of his day with the most life-changing, destiny-determining opportunity that they would ever encounter. And we'll also see that that very same opportunity is presented to each one of us right here and right now. So the passage that we're going to be looking at is in Luke chapter 13... The first 21 verses. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. If not, please take one from the pew in front of you. And you'll find this passage on pages 1046 and 1047 of those pew Bibles. Uh, We're going to follow this passage through as we go tonight, uh, rather than reading it all in advance. So please keep your Bibles open and follow along with me. And I've divided up what I'm going to say under two headings. An opportunity to repent... In verses 1 to 9, and an opportunity to rejoice, verses 10 to 17. And then I'll wrap up with some comments about uh, verses 18 to 21 and try and draw the themes together. So first then, an opportunity to repent. At the end of Luke chapter 12, the previous chapter which Colin preached on last week, Jesus had been teaching about the implications of his identity and his mission. 
He has come to bring division. Division between those who accept him and those who don't. And people need to rightly, rightly interpret what God is doing right in their very midst. And people need to recognize that now is the time to be reconciled to God, the divine judge, so that they can escape punishment for their many sins. All this is found in the last sections of chapter 12. So then, how do those who have been listening to all this from Jesus respond to this teaching? Verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. It seems that Pontius Pilate, the ruthless Roman governor of Judea, who would later oversee Jesus' own execution, had ordered the slaughter of a group of Galilean Jews while they were visiting the temple in Jerusalem. And the cold brutality of this massacre is underlined by the detail that their own blood had been mingled with the blood of the animals that they had brought as sacrifices. But how on earth was this relevant to Jesus' teaching, what he'd just been talking about? Well, given that Jesus had just been speaking about God's impending judgment and punishment, it seems that these folk who brought this up wanted to know whether these Galileans were particularly sinful people to have suffered such a terrible fate. The idea that what happens to you in life is a direct indication of your moral standing, that idea was as widespread in Jesus' day as it is in some circles today, and indeed even some Christian circles. Perhaps these people expected Jesus to say, yes, thank you, that's exactly what I'm talking about, that illustrates perfectly what I've been saying. These were especially bad people, and they got exactly what they deserved. But he doesn't say that. Neither does he say the opposite. No, those Galileans were innocent victims. It's Pilate and his thuggish soldiers who are the real sinners and God will give them what they deserve in the end. Nor does he say, as some might say today, well, this is just one of those awful, inexplicable tragedies in our world that has nothing to do with God's judgment or wrath. It's just a tragic consequence of the fact that we've abused God's gift of free will. God can't be held responsible. He doesn't say that either. Rather, as he so often did, Jesus replies in a way that turns people's religious assumptions on their heads and brings the issue right back to their relationship with God. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. And then he brings in another recent news story, this time a a natural disaster rather than an act of human wickedness. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. For Jesus, these shocking events have a very definite meaning which Jesus wants to drive home to people. First, they point to the fact of universal sin. 
of universal sin. The conclusion to draw from these calamities is not that some people must be greater sinners than others. The conclusion to draw is simply that all of us are sinners. The reason that these tragedies occur, whether natural disasters or man's inhumanity to man, is that we live in a world that is cursed and spoiled by the consequences of our own rebellion against our Creator. The evils that we see in the world around us should serve as painful reminders of the evils within our own hearts, within every one of us. But not only do calamities point to the fact of universal sin, they also point to the fact of universal judgment. Twice, Jesus says, with great emphasis, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now what does he mean by perish? Is he talking about physical death? Is he saying, unless you repent, you'll all die too? Well, that wouldn't make much sense, because the crowd knew that already. They knew perfectly well they were going to die one day, and that was going to happen whether or not they repented. If they repented, they would die. If they didn't repent, they would die. Nor is Jesus saying that they would die in the same sort of way as these other people. Unless you repent, you'll also get murdered by Roman soldiers or crushed under falling masonry. No. Jesus is talking about something even more tragic than physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death. He's giving the same warning he gave when he said earlier in chapter 12, verse 5, Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Jesus is talking about hell. That's what he means by perish. Jesus is talking about the ultimate consequences of human sin. Eternal separation from God in a place of self-inflicted pain and misery. When a person rejects God, who is the source of all life and all goodness and all peace, by rebelling against him and going their own way, then they must accept his just judgment. Eternal separation from him in the agony of hell. So then, why does Jesus connect this perishing with the fate of the Galileans and the 18 who died under the tower? What's the, what's the point of comparison? What's the connection that Jesus wants people to make? Well, it's this. When God's judgment comes, it is swift and it is shocking. Think about this. No one expects hell. No one expects hell. Everyone who ends up in hell will be utterly shocked to have ended up there. If they'd expected it, they would have taken action to avoid it. The meaning of the calamities then is that everyone is sinful and everyone stands under God's judgment. And so the message of the calamities is very simple. Repent. Repent. Turn around. Turn back to God and accept his offer of forgiveness and restoration. That is the message that Jesus sees in the murder of the Galileans 
and in the falling of the Tower of Siloam and in every tragedy that went before it and that comes after it. But Jesus hasn't finished yet. Now, he pushes the point further with a parable, verses 6 to 9. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Like a guided missile, this parable has a primary target. And that target is the whole Jewish nation. The images of fig trees and vineyards were often used by the prophets of the Old Testament to refer to Israel. And so Jesus' audience would have realized without much difficulty that this parable was pointing directly at them. But what does it mean? What does the parable mean? First of all, God's judgment on them is deserved. God's people have turned their backs on him. They've gone their own way, and they've placed their devotion elsewhere, in other gods, in other sources of security. And now, to top it all, they're spurning their only hope for recovery, the Savior that God had sent them to bring them back into relationship with him. The fruit that they should have produced was the same fruit that John the Baptist had preached about to prepare the way for Jesus. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he had said to them. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3 verse 8. Show that you are genuinely sorry for your sin and that you want to get right with God. But there was no fruit to be seen. And so the tree deserved to be cut down. However, although God's judgment is deserved, it is also delayed. The owner of the tree is not eager to cut it down. He's patient and generous. Although the tree shows no promise of fruitfulness, he's willing to wait one more year before letting the axe fall. And he'll make sure that it is nurtured and that it has every encouragement to bear fruit. So the point is clear. God would be entirely justified in executing his judgment today. Yet in his mercy, he delays. And he cares enough to give every encouragement and opportunity to turn back to him. But thirdly, although God's judgment is delayed, it is still inevitable. The opportunity to turn back to God can't last forever. If the tree continues to be fruitless, then it must forfeit its right to sustenance and to life itself. Its days are numbered. And so the message of this parable is not just repent. The message of the parable is repent now. Turn back to God today while there's still time. Because sooner or later God's judgment will strike like a collapsing tower unexpectedly and fatally. Now then, what should we take from this? Were these sobering messages only for the people who first heard this parable? Well, if we think so, 
then we've missed Jesus' point. If Jesus were standing here today, I think he would say, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than you people of Edinburgh? Do you think those 18 who died when the tower fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than you? Do you stand morally spotless before God? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so I ask, have you repented? Have you repented? Have you admitted that you failed to live God's way? That you deserve His judgment? Have you shown that you want to turn back to God by putting your trust in Jesus, who died for you to wipe out your guilt? Are you now producing the fruit of a life turned back to God? If not, Jesus' message today is the same. Repent, repent now, while there's still time, before the axe falls. Now, does this mean that those of us who have turned to God in faith and repentance can just sit back and relax at this point? Not at all. What this should impress on us is the importance and the urgency of evangelism. Every day in the news we hear about calamities in the world, some of them far removed from our own circumstances, some of them closer to home. And yet every day in this city, the worst conceivable tragedies are happening all around. People are perishing. People who are no worse sinners than us. People who live next door to us. People we work with. People we sit next to on the bus or in the lecture theatre. People who deliver our mail and our groceries. People we chat to as their children play with our children. And one by one, they eventually breathe their last breath and they perish. And they awake shocked to find themselves in hell because they never knew and trusted Jesus, who was their only hope to avoid that eternal death sentence. We don't much like to think about this, do we? I can't tell you how much I wanted to avoid talking about any of this tonight. But if we take Jesus' words seriously, we can't avoid it. We have the message of eternal life. We have the good news about what Jesus has done to cancel out our guilt before God and the people all around us need to hear it more than anything else. Now, I'm not suggesting that we act like the man I read about recently who couldn't understand why his evangelistic efforts weren't bearing any fruit. It turned out that he was introducing himself to his new neighbours by saying, Hi, I'm Alan and I need to tell you that you're headed for hell. Not a good evangelistic method. Pray, play, say. Far better. But there's little danger of us making that mistake, really, is there? The real danger is not that we're communicating the message poorly, but that we're not communicating it at all. Let's move on with our passage. We turn now from something Jesus said to something Jesus did, from his teaching ministry to his healing ministry. 
But there's really no sharp distinction between the two because Jesus' miracles were in fact part and parcel of his message. So read with me from verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. He called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? This miracle has been referred to as a mirror miracle, a mirror miracle, because it's very similar to earlier miracles in Jesus' ministry. If you've been with us earlier in this series, you'll remember that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus cast out an evil spirit from a man on the Sabbath while he was teaching in the synagogue. And then in chapter 6, Jesus healed a man whose hand was deformed on the Sabbath while he was teaching in the synagogue. And on that occasion, he was criticized for working on God's holy day of rest. And so this miracle in chapter 13 now is very similar. But that's no coincidence. One of the purposes of this mirror miracle is to see whether anything has actually changed in people's hearts since those earlier days. Will they continue to resist and reject Jesus despite the mounting evidence that he really is from God? We've already seen that God gives people more opportunities than they deserve to turn back to him. And this is one more of those opportunities. So how will people respond? Jesus' miracles function a bit like spiritual x-rays. They penetrate the surface and reveal what's deep inside for all to see. In the first place, they reveal, if I can put it this way, what's inside of Jesus. Who is he really? What is his true identity? And secondly, they reveal what's inside those who encounter Jesus. What is their true spiritual state? Are their hearts in tune with God or not? So what does this miracle reveal? First, it reveals divine compassion and power in Jesus. Divine compassion and power. This poor woman had suffered terribly in life. She spent the last 18 years with a spinal condition that forced her to be hunched over all the time. She couldn't look anyone in the eye. Strangers would stare at her. Children would make jokes about her. People would have wondered what terrible sin she must have committed in order to deserve that punishment. But even so, she still hoped in God because here she is at the synagogue to hear some teaching from the Bible. But she doesn't approach Jesus. He takes the initiative. The moment he sees her, he has compassion on her. He calls her over, and with just a word, 
and the touch of his hands, he brings her 18-year trial to an end. What would all of this communicate to the crowd standing watching? Well, first, they would have been familiar with the picture of God presented to them in their scriptures. A God who has compassion for broken people, for the poor, for the sick, for the needy. And Jesus displays here that very same compassion. But that God of compassion was also a God of power. Power not only over physical evil, over uh, deformity and disease, but also over spiritual evil. Luke records very deliberately that this woman's physical condition had a spiritual cause. It was brought on by some kind of demonic force. Verse 11. How did Luke know this? Well, perhaps it's from what Jesus says in verse 16, that it was Satan, the archenemy of God, the prince of demons, as the Pharisees called him. It was Satan who had kept this woman bound for 18 long years. But the people knew that only God had the power to overcome Satan. But here Jesus shows not only God's compassion, but also God's power. Jesus' divine identity has been revealed once again. But it's not Jesus who's on trial here. It's not Jesus who's being tested. It's everyone else. How will they respond There's a sense in which Jesus brings out both the best and the worst in people. And here we see both sides in the response of the woman on the one hand and in the response of the synagogue ruler on the other. Now we might be tempted to think that this synagogue ruler is kind of out on a limb here, all by himself. But notice how Jesus responds. You hypocrites, plural, And in verse 17, Luke says that all his opponents were humiliated. The synagogue ruler only served as the mouthpiece for opposition to Jesus. He simply gave voice to the cynical, selfish attitudes of many others who were standing there. And his response to this wonderful work of God revealed the hypocrisy and the hard-heartedness that is present in some degree in all of us. What do we see? Well, first, there's cowardice. Did you notice how the synagogue ruler didn't have the guts to rebuke Jesus? Jesus was the one who actually did the healing on the Sabbath. But instead, he rebuked the people for coming to be healed. How often do we take out our resentments, not on those who cause them, but on others who can be more easily bullied. And how much more so when the root of our resentment is God. You bitter about God and you're taking it out on someone else? Second, there's self-righteousness. How many of us have acted like this man? We find ourselves in a conflict and we immediately try and claim the moral high ground. We try to make ourselves look like the truly godly ones, the defenders of righteousness, when all along we're just trying to defend our own selfish interests. Few things are as offensive to God as sinners who spin their sinfulness as pious moral concern. Third, we see double standards. 
Jesus points out that his critics have no pangs of conscience about taking dumb animals out to water on God's holy day of rest. And yet they're very quick to tut-tut when Jesus releases a fellow human being, a fellow descendant of Abraham, no less, from 18 years of crippling illness. Well, their inconsistency may seem very obvious to us, but don't we often fall into the same trap? We have one set of moral standards to apply to ourselves and another set to apply to everyone else. What I did was unavoidable. What you did was unforgivable. Fourth, we see a profound lack of compassion. Jesus' critics were more interested in looking good than in doing good. It was a lot less effort, after all. It's so much easier to look after your own needs than to look after the needs of others. And even then, it wasn't as if Jesus expected them to heal the woman. He wasn't looking for them to perform a miraculous healing. All he wanted was to see them happy that she had been healed. He wasn't asking a lot. Jesus' compassion put them to shame. But when we consider how little we care about our fellow human beings, it often puts us to shame as well. We heard this morning about Operation Christmas Child. Were you moved by the faces of those children as they opened those boxes? Were you moved? What are you going to do about it? Back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said that he would bring division. He would bring division. And the different responses to what Jesus does here and says in the synagogue confirmed his prediction. Look at verse 17. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. There was a division in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. There were those who rejoiced with Jesus because they saw God in him and they put their hope in him. But there were also those who resented Jesus because he revealed what was really going on inside of them. And that same division applies today. Whenever people encounter the words and the deeds of Jesus. So which side of the division do you fall? Do you rejoice with Jesus because you see him for who he really is? And you see what he offers? Or do you resent Jesus because his Because he puts his finger on the true state of your heart. What does the spiritual x-ray reveal about the state of your heart tonight? Well, let's finish by looking quickly at verses 18 to 21. 18 to 21. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He talked about it a lot. In fact, he claimed to be ushering in the kingdom of God in a new and decisive way. But what does that mean? What is the kingdom of God like? Is it a spectacular and triumphant kingdom, full of miraculous healings and spiritual victories, just like the one that's been witnessed by this crowd? Or is it a kingdom that will ultimately fail? Because despite all the miracles, Jesus continued to be resisted and rejected by those who held the reins of power. Is the kingdom of God more like the festival fireworks display 
A sudden, dramatic explosion of sound and light that fills up the sky and goes on and on and on? Or is it more like a sparkler that lights up the darkness for a while and then fizzles away? Or is it like neither? Once again, Jesus turns to parables to make his point. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. The two parables make essentially the same point. Jesus wants his hearers to understand three things about the nature of the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom seems small and unimpressive at the start. Yes, there were amazing miracles, but Jesus' impact appeared very limited in his day. And in fact, when he was put to death, it looked very much as though his kingdom would die with him. But despite its humble beginnings, the kingdom will gradually grow and increase in influence. You can't see a mustard seed grow as you watch it, but it does. A pinch of yeast doesn't look like it will go very far or have very much effect, but it does. And in the end, the kingdom of God will be vast and all-encompassing. This image that Jesus uses of a, a fully grown tree with birds perched on its branches is used several times in the Old Testament to refer to a mighty kingdom that replaces all other kingdoms, a kingdom that eventually dominates the whole world and provides shelter and security for all who come under its rule. And one day, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be just that kind of kingdom. In the end, it will fill the whole earth and utterly transform it. According to the Son of God, that is where history is headed. You know, at times we may look at the state of the Christian church in our country or in the world at large and be discouraged or doubtful. What's the point, we say? We don't seem to be having much impact. We're going nowhere. If anything, we're going backwards rather than forwards. But then we're like people trying to observe a tree growing or dough rising. You have to see the big picture. You have to see the long view. And that's what Jesus gives us here. The kingdom of God will be triumphant. Now, let me try and tie all this up by taking you back to my opening illustration. The letter that I received last year presented me with an opportunity, a good investment opportunity, so it seemed at the time. And perhaps you've been uh, presented with similar opportunities. Well, investment opportunities like that can pay off very well, at least until the bottom gets blown out of the stock market by overstretched American mortgage holders and the Northern Rock Building Society. Maybe you've experienced that. But in the grand scheme of things... Opportunities like that don't matter a jot, whether they pay off or not. The only opportunity that ultimately matters is the opportunity presented to us by the kingdom of God. Because nothing else will last. Everything else will come to an end. 
When every human institution has crumbled away, the kingdom of God will remain. Only Christ's kingdom will last forever. And so the greatest opportunity of all time is the one that Jesus offers to us. It's an opportunity to belong to the kingdom of God. An opportunity to to be reconciled to God. An opportunity to repent and to have your sins forgiven. An opportunity to rejoice in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And then for those who belong to the kingdom, it's also an opportunity to invest in the kingdom. To invest in the kingdom. Perhaps when I talked about evangelism earlier, your heart sank. I know, I've been there. Ah, he said the E word. Yes, I know I'm supposed to witness to people, but I'm no good at it. People don't seem to be interested, and frankly, the whole idea just scares me. But we should not see evangelism as a burden. We should see it as an incredible investment opportunity. It's an opportunity to invest our time and our energy in something that has eternal, life-changing significance. It's an opportunity to invest in the only thing that will remain when everything else is dust blown away in the wind. And unlike the stock market, it's a no-risk investment. It's guaranteed by the power of God. I don't know for certain where the stock market is headed, and neither do you. But God knows for certain where everything is headed. And he's revealed it to us through Jesus. So, how will you respond to the greatest opportunity of all time? Do you belong to the kingdom of God? Are you investing in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God of justice. You are righteous in all your ways and you cannot overlook sin or brush it under the carpet. You are a perfectly just judge. But that means that we must face your judgment since we are all sinful people. All of us have failed to live up to your standards. We haven't even lived up to our own standards, the standards that we apply to others when we pass moral judgment on them. We are hypocrites who rightly deserve your just punishment. But we are so thankful, Father, that you are also a patient and merciful God. We thank you that you have delayed your judgment and given us many opportunities to repent and to receive the salvation that you offer through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. May none of us here tonight fail to take that incredible opportunity. And may none of us here be so selfish as to not share that incredible opportunity with those around us who need need it as much as we do.